Horse of a Different Color by Ralph Moody, University of Nebraska Press, 1968, Chapter 10, A Skunk Under the Woodpile. So I read this, Father, I give you thanks that we continue to have opportunities to let my voice uh, be shared with kids and grandkids and family members, friends even. I thank you that we uh, get to use this uh, recording to declare um, your goodness to us, to remind ourselves of your faithfulness, and to be glad, Lord, that um, in this moment of history, we get to experience something different, but we get to learn from what uh, happened in Ralph Moody's days. In Jesus' name, amen. The first half of November was wonderful for Bob and me. Our corn crop shucked out better than 80 bushels to the acre. The price of prime steers bounced up a full dollar, and the hogs not only stopped their plunge, but turned upward 25 cents. Besides that, our stock was gaining weight faster than any we'd fed, and there seemed no possible doubt that we'd make an enormous profit when we shipped at the end of the year. The only disturbing market factor was that the price of wheat took a sharp tumble at the middle of the month, though corn held fairly steady. Sunday evening, I went for a visit with George Miner to find out what he thought had caused a sudden drop in the wheat market. He was more concerned than I'd ever seen him and told me, if I don't miss my guess, there's a skunk under the woodpile, and I've been smelling him ever since the first of the month. The big grain speculators in Chicago must know about something going on in the world that the politicians down to Washington are holding back from the farmers, and that's what is driving the price of wheat down. It's been slipping off steady for six months now, but the crop was smaller this year than last. That's pretty good proof that the demand has gone all to pot. And the only reason I can think of is that Europe has raised a good enough crop to feed its own people. If that's so, you're going to see some mighty tough times ahead for American farmers, well, with the way the government's keeping us, kept us increasing production since the war end. If my guess is worth a tinker, farmers won't be the only ones to get hurt neither. Maybe we've been wasting our tears over bones for having to sell the bank stock. George walked to the gate when I left and told me, I didn't aim to make it sound like the whole shooting match was going to, to the Bow Wows, and I hope my running off of the mouth didn't upset you none. Well, with corn falling only a nickel and fat cattle gaining back most of their loss and hogs on the way up again, it don't look to me like you and Bob have too much to worry about. It's only six weeks till you'll be shipping, and ain't likely that we'll run into any trouble to speak of before the end of the year. But if I was in your boots, I'd be a mite leery come January about putting another big bunch of cattle and hogs on feed. Good night, son, and don't lose no sleep over what I've said to you. Irene, give me mince pie for supper, and it could be I'm looking at the dark side of things on account of it laying heavy in my stomach. <laughs> when Bob and I were in Kansas City in August, the Kansas City Star had just completed a radio sending station so powerful that it could be heard clearly for 500 miles. Every noon, one of the newspaper men at the stockyards broadcast the market report for the day, telling how much stock of each type had arrived and the high and low price each grade had brought at the morning auctions. I bought an instruction book on building radio receivers and then materials for a crystal set, but was so busy after we got home that I didn't get it finished and working well until corn checking time. Half the farmers in Beaver Township wanted a radio as soon as they'd heard mine. So I agreed to build one for anybody who would shuck 100 bushels of corn for us and send to Sears Roebuck for materials. The materials arrived the Monday after I'd had my visit with George. So I fixed up a bench in the bunkhouse and spent every moment I could spare from feeding and trading on radio building. 
As I worked, I picked up nearly everything coming over the air. And the more I heard, the more it seemed to me that George was right. The price of wheat slipped off another dime, corn dropped to 60 cents, and a hogs nosedived to $3, though fat steers held steady. By the end of the week, I was so worried I could hardly sleep. But Bob was gay and carefree as a robin in May, for he'd believe anything that was to his advantage and nothing to his disadvantage. When I tried to explain the nine-month hog cycle, the fact that the upward phase had ended in September didn't bother him at all. He laughed uproariously and told me, shucks, the only trouble is that them hogs don't know they fell off in their cycle yet. Soon as they find out, they're going to get up and start running like the devil was after them. And when they do, you'll see the market jump right back to $20 or better. Did you ever try to stop a scared hog when he got to running? After that, I never tried to discuss the market with Bob. But all that kept me from going for another visit with George was I didn't want to act like a scared kid. The day before Thanksgiving, hogs took another sharp drop. When the broadcast ended, I was willing to admit being scared. I saw a kitten and had ridden to the miner's front gate before I noticed it. The McCook taxi standing in the dooryard. George had all his cattle um, corralled, and there were two well-dressed strangers with him looking them over. I didn't think anyone had seen me, so I turned kitten back to home for home, my mouth dry with nervousness and worry. As soon as I'd unsaddled, I set to working on a radio requiring enough concentration to leave no room for worry. I had no idea how long I'd been working on it when the bunkhouse door opened and George came in. Rick, could I drop by and see how you got, go about making one of them contraptions, he told me as he ooched his behind up onto the bench beside the coil I was winding. For maybe 10 minutes, I tried to tell him about sound waves and frequencies and things like that, but we both knew that we were only making talk. At last, he chuckled and told me, I'll be jiggered if I, I ain't getting to be super, as superstitious as Effie. I reckon I'd light out and run myself to death if a black cat was to cross the road in front of me. Well, he told me, I'm sorry, trying to act offhand, I kept my eyes on the coil and asked, what are you getting superstitious about? Well, he told me, like Effie say, the moon ain't in exactly the right phase for setting a, setting a hen, and it seemed to me like the stink from under the woodpile was getting a mite ranker here of late. So when a couple of buyers from Iowa happened past this afternoon looking for Hereford breeding stock, I'll let him have a few carloads to sh be shipped Saturday. I still didn't look up, but asked, what did you do, run advertisements in the Iowa papers? Oh, a couple of them. He said, you know, I ain't as young as what used to be, and Irene's been, of been at me of late to take things easier. Without us having a boy on our own, and with good help hard to come by, I reckon I might as leave cut the herd down to a few good heifers. Do you think it's getting dangerous enough that Bob and I ought to ship our stock this weekend? I asked. Wouldn't say so, he said thoughtfully. Before I come in, I stopped by the scales and lost a couple of dimes to Bob. Your steers look mighty good for being less than 90 days on corn, but Bob says they'd need another month to top them out real good, and I'd agree with him. If you was to ship now, you'd do well to get $13 a hundred at the auctions, and you'd take an awful licking on your hogs. They need another month's growth to bring them up to bacon size. And it's plumb crazy for hogs to be selling like they are now, at 650 below fat cattle. One or both of them's got to, go, got to move till the gap's no more than $2. And I can't believe fat cattle will take any such drop till things get a lot worse than what they are now. Well, for the rest of the month, the news uh, coming over the air wasn't disturbing enough to keep me awake nights. 
Then on December 1st, the fat cattle market went to pieces like a homesteader's shack in a cyclone. By the 4th, the price of prime steers had dropped from 1675 to 1285. But instead of coming up to help close the gap, bacon hogs dropped to 975, though wheat remained steady and corn actually went up a nickel. Bob quit listening to the livestock reports when the fat cattle market disintegrated, went to McCook or Oberlin every day, and often failed to come home until after midnight. He stopped weighing steers, seldom went near the feedlot, and when I tried to talk to him about shipping, he told me, shucks, them cattle and hogs don't belong to me no more. The big shots up to the bank want them. They can come and get them. Two of the bankers came on December 16th, my 22nd birthday, with prime steers at Kansas City, when prime steers at Kansas City had dropped to $10.50 and bacon hogs to nine ten. What brought them was Bob's having overdrawn his bank account by more than $100. He wasn't at home, and when I told the bankers that I didn't know where he was, one of them became as pompous as a turkey gobbler in April. He strutted to the feedlot, looked over the gate, and told me roughly, order cars and ship this stuff before the prices goes any lower. We've taken all the loss we aim to on it. Ever since the noon broadcast, I considered shipping on Saturday, but I've never liked being roughly ordered around, so I decided not to do it. I waited for the man to finish and said, the notes and mortgages on this stock aren't due until January 4th. And I don't believe you hold them, do you? Didn't Mr. Kennedy, dis Kennedy discount them to a Kansas City cattle loan company? His face turned almost purple, and he bellowed. That don't make any difference. We guarantors on the loans, and we're not going to risk any further loss. Ship this stock Saturday. Well, I can't talk for Mr. Wilson, I told him. But if you want my half shipped this Saturday, I suggest you get a court order. The man wasn't too careful of his language when he told me how sure I might be that he'd get a court order, and he drove out of the dooryard so fast that the spinning wheels burned rubber off his tires. That evening, Bob came home while I was feeding, so I called him out to the lot and told him about his overdraft and the banker's demand that we ship stock on the coming Saturday. Them guys don't scare me none, he blustered. Anytime they want this stock, they can send the sheriff after it. They can't take no more away from me than what they've got on a mortgage a mortgage on. Oh, yes, they can, I told them. With those bad checks, they can easily get an attachment on your half of the corn crop. And you you know there's a bad check law in this state. It might be they'll send the share you they send the sheriff after. He blustered a bit more, but for the first time, there was a sound of worry in his voice, and he went to the house muttering to himself. All through supper, he was irritable as a dog with canker in his ears went to bed while I was milking, and drove away toward McCook soon after I went out to feed the stock next morning. I was working on a radio in mid-forenoon when I heard Bob's contagious laugh and the sound of unfamiliar men's voices. I stepped to the bunkhouse window as Bob and two strangers came out to the stockyard, climbed into a new Buick touring car, and drove away. About an hour later, Bob came back in the old Buick, pulled to a stop in front of the bunkhouse, and sang out jovially, Let the daggone bankers try stealing that corn now and see how far they get. I opened the door and asked, what did you do, trade your half of it for that 1921 Buick? He lowered his voice and said, I ain't that big a fool. I put enough cash in the bank to make them checks good, but that's all they're going to get their fingers on. Sure, I made a deal for, the new, for a new Buick, but I only paid 100 bucks down. That way, the dealer will keep the ownership papers, and these smart guys up to the bank can't steal it away from me. Don't say nothing to Marguerite about it. I aim to save it for a Christmas surprise, or maybe New Year's. It'll take a week to get the model I dealt for out here from Omaha. With money in his pocket, 
a new Buick on order, and the new bankers outwitted, Bob was fairly prancing. At every chance, he flashed a roll of bills that would have choked a bull, and Marguerite must have believed he'd struck it rich. They made four shopping trips to McCook, each time coming home with armloads of packages. The Thursday before Christmas, Bones phoned and asked me to come to his house. When I got there, he led me into the parlor and told me, I hope you understand that I don't have to say about what goes on at the bank anymore. That is, no more than one vote gives me, and that's precious little. I understand, I said. Are they after my hide? I wouldn't exactly say that, he told me, but you got their dander up when you told them to get a court order. You know, of course, that mortgage stock can't be moved across the state line without authorization from the mortgage holder. Well, they've taken up you boys' notes from the loan company, aiming to force you into shipping your stock in the bank's name by refusing authorization uh, for it to cross the state line otherwise. If you ship that way, the entire proceeds will have to be paid to the bank, and I have a notion that they plan to impound every dollar of it, claiming that you and Bob are in partnership. They ain't no different, but you'd have to sue to get your money, so the burden of proof would be on you. Is there any way to avoid it, I asked? That's what I called you up here for, he told me. If you were refused shipping authorization on your half of the stock, subject to mortgage, of course, you'd have a legal damage claim. It would include any loss sustained because of market decline, feed, and care of the stock from the time refusal until ultimate sale. The bank's only defense would be to prove partnership, and the burden of proof would be on them. They know it, and I don't believe you'll have much trouble in getting an authorization when they find out that you know it. Is there any legal reason to keep Bob and me from dividing our stock now, I asked. Of course not, he said. You can divide it any time. That's part of the agreement under which the loans were made. And could Bob turn his half over to the bank before the mortgage is due, whether or not the new men agree to it? If he stopped feeding the stock, they'd have to take it. What else could they do to save the situation? After thanking Bones, I drove around the, the back way and pulled up in front of the bank as though I'd just come from home. When I went in, the man who had ordered me to ship the stock was at Bones' old desk, and there were only he and the cashier in the bank. I stepped to the rail and said pleasantly, Good morning. I plan to ship my stock on Christmas Day, so I dropped in for an authorization subject to the amount of my mortgage. There'll be no need of an authorization, he told me. Without looking up, ship the stock in the bank's name. Maybe Mr. Kennedy forgot to tell you, I said, but the bank doesn't hold title to the stock, only a mortgage on it. He looked up, stared at me, and said roughly, that makes no difference. The mortgage is for more than the stuff's worth. Now get out of here, kid, and do as I told you. I'm busy. I bent over enough to rest an elbow on the rail and said as though we were having a pleasant conversation. That's true of Mr. Wilson's stock but he won't be asking for an authorization. He'll be turning his stock over to the bank on his mortgage, probably this afternoon. If you like, I'd be willing to ship it for you at $50 a carload. Whoever decided not to give me an authorization probably didn't realize how fast the market is falling and that my note isn't due until January 4th, or that I'd have a damage claim against the bank for... I stopped in the middle of the sentence and started toward the door before I got... But before I got my hand on the knob, a panicky voice called out, Hold on a minute, Moody, will you? When I looked back, the man was coming toward the railing with a forced smile on his face. It does sound like the man that made the decision didn't have all the facts before him, he said. You see, Harry Kennedy hasn't been well of late. That's why we had to take over the management here. And we're finding there's a lot of things you forgot to tell us the way a sick man will. Let me have about an hour to get hold of my associates, and I believe we can find some way to give you and Wilson shipping authorization. 
You'd both ship if you had the authorizations, wouldn't you? That's right, I told them as I stood in the open doorway. But don't bother about, about them unless your associates are perfectly willing. Now that I've come to think of it, I can see that I'd make more money the other way. Anyway, anyhow, I'll drop back in an hour. Then I stepped outside and closed the door. I drove around the back way again, stopped to tell Bones of the conversation, then went to Overland to do my Christmas shopping. I wasn't feeling as, a, as affluent as Bob, so made $5 cover candy for Marguerite Neffy and a toy for each of the girls. It was exactly an hour from the time I left the Cedar Bluffs Bank until I was back, and my reception was somewhat warmer than before. The man at Bones' desk came to the railing with an envelope in his hand, saying heartily, It was just as I suspect, suspected. Poor old Harry forgot to give us all the facts, but now that we've got the straight of it, we'll, we're more than glad to accommodate you. I've got the authorization all made out here. Look it over and see if it fills the bill. It was typed on the bank's letterhead and released our stock for shipment and sales, subject to a claim for one half the net proceeds plus $20,667, the amount of my note and accrued interest for four months. Below the bank's name, the man has scrawled his own name illegibly, with VP after it in large, clear letters. From that day on, he was always spoken of around Cedar Bluffs as VP. I read the release carefully, put it in my pocket, and said, that's okay. We'll ship Saturday and hope to get the stock into the earliest auctions Monday morning. Do you want our agent to mail you a check, or would you rather I telegraph you the amount so you can draft on him by wire? VP walked to the door with me, saying, send me a telegram, will you, bud? Since we took over the management this bank is as safe as a church you understand but harry over lending like he did we've been a bit tight for ready cash he opened the door for me and as i climbed into the dilapidated old maxwell he called out cheerily drop in whenever we can do anything for you always glad to accommodate our friends after going by to show bones the authorization i stopped at the depot and ordered 17 cattle cars and three double dectal hog cars the rest of the afternoon and all day Friday, I spent getting ready for the big shipment, but Bob paid no attention to the stock and gave me no help. While he and Marguerite were trimming the tree that evening, I went up to the telephone office, partly to take Effie her box of candy, but mainly because I knew she'd find me the help I needed. To move as much stock as we had from the feedlot to the shipping pens, sort and load it would be impossible for one man, or even two. And with conditions as they were, I didn't feel that I could afford to hire help. Effie had known for more than a week that I'd lose almost everything I had on the stock in the feedlot and had shed many a tear over it. After we visited for maybe 15 minutes, I mentioned that Bob and I were going to ship our stock next day. <clears throat> on Christmas, she asked incredulously, I never heard the likes. What you doing that for? Because it falls on Saturday, I said, and I'm afraid to wait another week with the market falling the way it is. <clears throat> she sniffed. I'd think it would be hard to get help on Christmas Day. Who all did you get? Who all did you get? I grinned at her and told her, I haven't got anybody yet. But George Minor always lends a hand, and I'm going to try to put a burr under Bob. My grandfather used to say, I'm feeling poorly of late. Maybe it's just plain stingy, but there won't be much left out of this shipment for paying help. That time, Effie didn't sniff, but snorted. My land? Why on earth didn't you let on about it sooner? Here it is. Half past eight already, and if it was any night but Christmas Eve, half the folks in this township would be abed. Now sit still and keep your trap shut while I get out a line call. If there's any large quantity of folks in Beaver Valley that would be glad to lend you a hand. If they knew about your shipping. As she spoke, her thumb was pushing the key in the 444 ring that signaled the line call. 
She made the call sound as though our shipment would be the grand, greatest historic event of the century, and that taking part in it would be an honor. There. That ought to do the trick, she said, when she'd pulled the line plugs. Now you go on home and get some sleep. You look plum beat out. She took the headphones off and walked to the door with me, then gathered me into her arms as if I were still a little boy, gave me a kiss full in the mouth and told me, God bless you, boy, and a Merry Christmas to you. Don't get any notions in your head that the folks in this valley don't know what you're going through. Well, the last couple of minutes of it has been mighty sweet, I told her. Kissed her again and went out to the old Maxwell feeling happier than I had for many days. There was little celebrating in Beaver Township on Christmas Day, 1920. Wheat that had cost $2 a bushel to raise, harvest, and thresh was bringing $1.45 at the elevator. Shelled corn was bringing $0.60, cents, and no one had the slightest idea how much lower livestock prices might plunge. Many farmers knew only that everything they had gained during the war years had suddenly been swept away by a force that could neither fight nor understand, that their mortgages were greater than the value of their assets, and that they had new bankers whom they neither trusted nor knew. Only Bob seemed untouched, for he still had a good-sized roll of gold-backed 20s to flash. The westbound train left our cars early Christmas forenoon, so I hauled a load of corn to the siding and spread a few bushels in each car as bait to make the loading easier. But Bob never left the house all morning. Marguerite had, of course, heard Effie's line called the night before, and she must have listened in on some of the morning gossip on the line. When I came back from the siding, she came out to tell me dinner was ready, and she seemed to be on the verge of tears. How are things, Balp? she asked nervously. I've seen them better, I told her, but they're no worse for us than for most of the farmers. Unless the market goes all the pieces between now and Monday, there'll be a few shekels left over from this shipment. Don't you worry about anything until I tell you it's time to worry. Has Bob said whether or not he's going to Kansas City with the shipment? Mm-hmm. I packed his suitcase, she said tonelessly, then burst out. Oh, Balp. I wish that was the nearest I ever heard her, her come to complaining, but she suddenly bit the sentence off and turned back to the house. I waited a few minutes to give her time to get hold of herself, and when I went in to wash her dinner, she was humming. Throughout the meal, she tried to act as if she were happy, but it was obviously a hard task. After dinner, I had barely time to stow a razor and clean underwear in my and to stow a razor and clean underwear in my war bag before a couple of dozen neighbors came to help sort and load the stock. With so many helpers and the cars well baited, the loading was easy, leaving me plenty of time for completing the bills of lading before the arrival of the eastbound train. As it pulled away, with our cars, Bob, dressed in his sunny best, showed up and swung aboard the caboose. As always, I wore blue jeans and a jumper, but there was little need of working clothes on that trip. Our stock was in as fine condition as any we'd shipped, and the weather was crisp and clear. So there was little for me to do but inspect the cars at each stop to be sure we had no fallen or injured animals. Considering the demoralized market, our stock did well in the auctions. After all deductions, my share was about $3,000 more than the mortgage and interest claims against it. While I was settling with the agent, Bob told us he was going to see a Junction City friend who would lend him money for another, freedom op for another feeding operation, and he hadn't returned at train time. It was well past noon on Tuesday when I got home. I stopped only long enough to tell Marguerite that Bob had gone to see a Junction City friend, then drove to Overland for I decided to move my bank account to the Farmer's National rather than risking ha risk having it impounded at Cedar Bluffs. I've met few men whom I liked and trusted right from the beginning as I did Charlie Fricke, president of the Farmer's National Bank. We visited for more than half an hour, 
Though he knew about my wheat hauling, livestock dealing, and feeding business, he seemed more interested in how I'd happened to come to Decatur County, what I'd done before coming there, and the family at home. He said the First National would make no livestock feeding loans until the economy settled down again, but that he'd make me, a short, that he'd make me short-term loans in reasonable amounts for my trading and shipping business. When I left, he walked to the door with me and said, Drop in whenever you come to town. I'll be very much interested in how you're getting along. Wow. So that chapter really covered a lot of just the whole market, right? You know, the prices going up and down and how it costs more to raise the animals than you could sell them for or the feed. And um, and how when you have loans, you have to pay the loans or get wiped out. Anyway, there was a lot in that chapter. I love you guys.